Welcome to the Polite Conversations podcast, where every episode is focused on civility, decorum, and good manners. And I'm your lovable, non-controversial host, Ina. If you know me, you know I definitely don't like to ruffle any feathers at all. Well, hello there, dear listeners. I hope you had a good holiday season if you celebrate during this time of year. It's been one full of mixed feelings for me. I figured I would put some thoughts out there, reflecting on this past year. Well, first of all, this year I am so thankful to have my dad around, I cannot say that enough. Those of you who followed my update on the traumatic incident my family suffered last year, a very violent and random attack on my dad, who was in his 80s, which he very miraculously survived, um... So if you follow that, you'll know how heartbroken and shaken up I was, uh, unable to really even talk about it. This time last year, he was on the road to recovery, but newly home from the hospital and not very mobile just yet. This year, though, he's come such a long way and was able to come over to my house for a family get-together, and he was doing things pretty independently and... uh, You know, not exactly how he was before the incident, but pretty close and back to his usual sarcastic, adorable self. So it was a pretty huge milestone for my family, and uh, yeah, that part felt amazing. But other than that, it's been a really weird period for me recently. Distressing and upsetting, obviously, because of the mass slaughter that we're witnessing in real time of innocent Palestinians on a daily basis, seeing videos of pain and suffering and death that I will never recover from. Having almost lost a loved one to a violent incident last year really makes me feel that pain and loss on a very personal level. Though, of course, it was a very different and incomparable situation. But when you have felt the threat of almost losing someone to violence, every reminder of such a situation brings you back to those intense feelings of fear and horror. But even if I try to consciously separate my own trauma from that, the sheer helplessness that I feel, honestly, that that I think most people would feel or should feel with these videos of children and babies being harmed, my instinct is to, to want to protect them, someone so small and vulnerable, but we can't do anything but watch them be maimed and killed on a daily basis. And aside from that feeling of constant horror, it's been a very disorienting period too. It's changed my perception on a lot of things forever, I think. I've thought about and addressed the uselessness of the ironically named humanist movement for a few years now, but its hollowness and emptiness has never been more apparent than in these times, especially of people who claim to care about religious extremism. They are nowhere to be seen or heard in a climate where biblical invocations and religious symbols 
are being used to justify genocidal actions, where these views and proclamations are shared with pride and ethnic cleansing is openly being carried out, with Israeli publications openly stating it, with the Prime Minister stating it. And the only time I've heard from one of these people is if they're glossing over those things or making excuses for them. And the blatant, barbaric disregard on display for the cultural heritage and history of Palestine as ancient churches, as libraries, theaters, and universities are turned to rubble in an instant. I feel like my understanding of the world has really been shaken in some pretty significant ways. Like, of course, I knew what Israel was doing was horrific. I've, I've known that for years, but I did not understand the full extent. I did not have any clue that it was horrific in a way that is very ISIS-like. Except worse even, because the most powerful countries in the world are doing nothing to stop it. Not even issuing a strong enough condemnation of those acts. Forget condemnation. They're looking the other way, or directly helping. And they're punishing people who oppose it, in fact. At least when ISIS barbarically destroyed heritage statues and institutions, everyone condemned it. No one sent them weapons to help them, for fuck's sake. When ISIS filmed themselves killing innocent people with glee, there wasn't a worldwide gaslighting campaign to try and downplay or deny what they were doing, even though they did not have the capability to do slaughter at the scale Israel is. I always thought Saudi Arabia was one of the harshest, cruelest countries, shamelessly violating human rights, and I was and am always vocal about criticizing it, but I could not have imagined a country so, so, so much worse and cruel that they control rainwater, the oceans, that they round up and arrest children on dubious charges and torture and violate them in captivity. A country that would try to police the emotions of families reuniting. A country that would tell people to flee to an area only to deliberately bomb that area. New York Times has now confirmed that Israel has routinely used one of its biggest and most destructive bombs in areas it designated as safe for civilians. Palestinians have been saying that for weeks, and Western media refused to properly even report on it. But better late than never, I guess. I could not have imagined a country that would target queer Palestinians and threaten them all the while claiming to be the only civilized LGBT-friendly democracy in the region washing their crimes with rainbow flags and the co-opting of feminism and Me Too in the most obscene ways. Sure, they don't have public beheadings, but the number of heads they've taken off with their bombings in a matter of weeks far surpasses what Saudi has done. They may not have done an exact Jamal Khashoggi, but the number of journalists they have deliberately blown to bits 
in a short period is unparalleled. What is it that makes one more worthy of outrage than the other? Is it because bombing is from a distance? Is it because an army doing it makes it more acceptable somehow? Or is it because Israel is not held to the same standards? Grappling with all these questions has really been fucking wild. I I grew up thinking, wow, it doesn't get worse than what people are subjected to in countries like Afghanistan and Saudi, but it fucking does. Israel is a country that banned Palestinians from having pasta, cilantro, chocolate, surfboards. (laughs) Look that up. It sounds too absurd to be true, but it is. It's true. They oppress people in ways I had never even considered. Trying to comprehend Israel's ISIS-like behavior out in the open in the past few weeks has really made me feel like I have had the rug pulled from under me. How could this really be happening with the world watching? I always knew it was bad, the way Palestinians were treated, but I couldn't have imagined the extent of dehumanization, the TikToks of people dancing and mocking the misfortune of Gazans without food, water, or electricity. Again, it just reminds me of a jihadist level of cruelty. The planting of Israeli flags atop the rubble, giant menorahs being erected over buildings that they've proudly blown up, ISIS. It's what keeps coming to mind. Except this isn't some unhinged terrorist group that mostly everyone is against. It's an officially recognized state that gets billions of dollars in aid from the most powerful country in the world. The extensive marketing campaigns and lobbying and careful management of its image as the most civilized and ethical place in the whole region, even as it carries out ethnic cleansing and genocide. It's so fucking twisted. I am heartbroken for the Palestinians who were clearly not being heard for decades, who were being silenced when they were telling everyone it's this fucking bad. And I'm also very sad for Israelis and even non-Israeli Jews who do not share these views in wanting the complete destruction of Palestinian society, yet they have to see their faith be used as a symbol of all that carnage. It must be an awful feeling. And you know what else I've been thinking a lot about? Well, As I said earlier, the humanist movement was always shit. Just like the atheist one, there are so many overlaps. We knew that, so that's no real revelation. But what about the leftist content creators online? How many of them have remained completely silent or mostly silent throughout this violence and daily killing of babies? It wouldn't be as disappointing if they didn't spend all their time in the past advocating for human rights and equality, but I guess it's a lot easier to do in the abstract. If you can't use your platform or your voice in an urgent time like this, when you are supposedly an advocate for human rights and equality, if you can't speak up about apartheid, about ethnic cleansing in real time, what good even is your platform? 
I just, I just want people to really think about that and take note of who's pretty largely silent in these times. This also brings me to the many content creators who debunk conspiracy theories and right-wing disinformation. If you can't talk about the Pollywood conspiracy theories or the ones saying that dead Palestinian babies are fake plastic dolls, if you can't call out state propaganda or massive publications that are spreading this, then what good is your platform? If you're interested in pushing back against fascism, but you don't have the courage to speak up on an entire fascist state, carrying out mass violence, rounding up people and tagging them with numbers right fucking now, then what good is your anti-fascism? This time, right now, is unparalleled. The number of journalists that have been systematically targeted and eliminated for daring to show what's happening on the ground. Whatever the fuck happened to all the people who stood up for Charlie Hebdo? Do Palestinian journalists murdered in much higher numbers, do they not deserve even a fraction of the solidarity that was shown for Charlie Hebdo? There's not even an attempt at consistency. Those who speak the loudest about so-called freedom of speech and wanting to protect dissenting voices when they want someone to be able to say the N-word are also the loudest at wanting to shut down pro-Palestinian voices. It is crazy-making to witness this level of double standard, this level of horror, and this level of gaslighting, and this level of silence from so many people that I expected better from. If you cover the IDW freaks, how do you ignore their current vile justifications and bizarre apologetics for mass violence and talk about their other lower stakes views? What good is it if you can't debunk this stuff when it's most urgent? If you hate anti-vaxxers so much, but don't speak up about the people voicing their desires to want to intentionally spread epidemics and plagues amongst Palestinians. What good is your platform? Really, it has been appalling on many levels. And, and you can't help but think, do Palestinians matter less because they're Muslim, mostly? <sighs> See, this is why it's important to honestly support diverse voices and diverse content creators because there's a lot of important perspectives you'd be missing, especially right now if your content consumption relied on just the most popular left tube or left-leaning podcast creators who just very often coincidentally happen to be white also and don't do too much to uplift other voices. That is um, often the case, but not always, of course. I am thankful for a lot of uh, lefty content creators currently as well, like um, the Majority Report, who have been so, so excellent on this issue, and Matt Leck on his own show, Left Reckoning. I'm sure Michael Brooks would have been so proud. His voice and perspective are sorely missed. On YouTube, I've also really appreciated takes from Navarra, Democracy Now! and uh, The Cavernacle, too. Paris Marks of the podcast Tech Won't Save Us has been excellent and vocal on this urgent issue, so I just wanted to shout them out. But I don't know how others are going on creating 
regular content as usual. When we are living through something like this, that is as well documented as this, I don't know how your conscience allows you to do that, especially when you have a large influential platform, and especially when you otherwise speak on politics. To an extent, of course, I I understand the human instinct to want to look away in dark times like these, but when you have a large platform and you're a left-leaning content creator and you claim to care about equality and human rights, then how? How do you look away for so, so long? But more than anything, though, I wanted to highlight the bravery of Palestinian journalists who won't give up, even in the harsh conditions they have to report in. With the constant threat of death hanging over them, truly, truly the most heroic people of our times. If Western publications had any shame or decency, they would be uplifting those voices on their cover pages and calling for solidarity with them. But yeah, my faith in lefty content creators is pretty shaken. My faith in Western journalistic integrity is shaken. My contempt for centrists has grown significantly. I've seen different types of centrists straddle the fence on pretty disgusting issues before. Vaccine centrism, abortion centrism, racism centrism. All that is definitely gross, but genocide and ethnic cleansing centrism, or both sidesing, is the most disgusting thing of all. Well, here's hoping that things are finally called out for what they are in Western media, and that there is enough pressure on Israel to make it stop its campaign of mass murdering innocent civilians in the new year. Anyway, I thought we should end on a lighter, happier note. So now that we've covered the heavy, dark stuff that I needed to talk about, um, let's talk about something else now. Looking back at the content I've put out this year, uh, I'm pretty happy with how it's gone, especially in the second part of the year. You know, I've definitely enjoyed putting together this whole new mini-series on the global far right. I'm hoping to continue that in the new year if the Patreon budget allows it. And restarting Woking Up has been cathartic as gross and vile as Sam's content is currently and always, but especially currently, it feels good to be able to document and debunk that garbage that he puts out. And there's a lot more to do on that next year. So uh, I hope you're ready for it. And I have to say, one of the most fun episodes I did in 2023 was the two-part Evo Psych one. If you haven't checked that out yet, definitely make sure you go do that. I will put a link in the show notes because you're missing out on some hilarious shit from the Phrenology crew and their friends. And uh, as much as I despise Twitter, I have really enjoyed doing Twitter spaces. I'm hoping that I can keep those going too if Twitter isn't wrecked. Love being able to interact with listeners. It is good fun. And speaking of good fun, I was reading some podcast reviews that I thought were funny. I've picked my favorite to share with you here because it's just so fascinating on so many levels. Here we go. This will be a good lighthearted note to end on. By Demon. And it's titled Little Girl Lost. 
You gotta love even the title too, eh? Nothing like some infantilizing misogyny straight from the beginning. I must be a little girl who just doesn't know what's what because I criticize things this person doesn't like. Another so-called progressive who comes across as woefully regressive. Wah, wah, how original. We're doing the 2015-2016 thing of regressive left in 2023. Managed to listen to a few of these and they are all largely insufferable. Ooh, so insufferable they managed to listen to several of them. They must have the same hate listening disease that I have. Author seems lost and meanders from place to place in a pool of extreme wokest drivel from one hand-waving topic du jour to the next. (laughs) I don't know. I guess to some people it's like the extreme end of wokeness, but I I certainly wouldn't think that it was that extreme and lost. If you don't like what I'm saying, doesn't necessarily mean I'm meandering or lost. She is very, very clearly triggered by men, particularly by European and Jewish ancestry men. Perhaps not quite the ex-Muslim, she claims. Hmm? (laughs) This was probably the best part. There's just so much to unpack here. I am uh, triggered by men, am I? Uh, I'm trying to think of why they'd say that, because I certainly have a lot of perfectly friendly, non-angry conversations with a lot of men on my show, even some that I disagree with. (laughs) Is it simply because I criticize a lot of IDWers and they happen to be men? I mean, that's the only thing that comes to mind. Otherwise, I don't see myself focusing particularly on being upset by men specifically. And the part where he says it's particularly European and Jewish ancestry men is also so bizarre. Like, I've never criticized someone based on their religious affiliation nor on their Europeanness. So the only thing I can think of is that this person has observed that I criticize Sam Harris, Bill Maher, Dave Rubin, Gad Sad, possibly, and uh, come to some conclusion that it's about them having Jewish and or European ancestry. Such a ridiculous claim to make, because in each of those cases, I have very explicitly laid out that I criticize them for their right-wing views and uh, far-right laundering. Especially funny, as they also say, I am perhaps not the ex-Muslim I claim to be. Why? Ex-Muslims don't criticize right-wing men who happen to have those backgrounds? I mean, I guess a lot of them don't because their views align so well with Dave Rubin and Harris. But that's got nothing to do with the ex-Muslims leaving the religion and everything to do with them grifting off of being an ex-Muslim. When that's all you see amongst ex-Muslims, I guess it is weird to come across someone like me. (laughs) I wonder if they saw ex-Muslim in the description of the podcast or certain episodes and were sorely disappointed because it didn't turn out to be the far-right fan fest they had hoped it would. But this is someone under a pseudonym, so could be an entirely imaginary construct. I do not understand why some people think that my anonymity would be a reason I would make up my ex-Muslimness entirely, but it's not the first time I've come across the she's not a real ex-Muslim because she's not anti-Muslim enough point of view. But if you've heard my conversations and views on life in Saudi and Pakistan, where I go into detail, I mean, all of that would be really 
hard to fake, I think. For some reason, the anonymity really, really bothers my haters. They can't stand that they can't harass me further or hurl personal insults and have to mostly stay engaged with my views because that's all they have to go on. Harris, Gad, Ruben have expressed this frustration about me specifically, even when they have supposedly said they understand the risks involved in speaking out as an ex-Muslim. That understanding doesn't extend to me because I criticize them, and how very dare I. (laughs) I wonder if this is Gad. It sounds a little bit like him, actually. A troll with a voice and no substance or gravitas. She has a particular hard-on for Sam Harris, having previously been his acolyte. Brackets. Allegedly. (laughs) What, am am I faking that too? It seriously sounds like a lot of daddy issues. Seeing this in academia. A scorned student who didn't get enough in-class attention. We can only speculate. Ew. It's so gross that they can't just criticize a woman without resorting to some sort of sexualizing, like daddy issues, or infantilizing, like little girl. And why is it that covering a clearly influential public figure who, as I demonstrate, launders and promotes some extremist views... Why is it that so often is seen as some kind of obsession by these types of critics? Is it just because I'm a woman covering this topic or what? Like, does the podcast that cover Alex Jones get told they are obsessed? I mean, influential public figures are pretty damn important to cover, I think. Especially if they're laundering dangerous far-right views and figures. But they can't actually address that. So it's like, yeah, she's obsessed. She wants his attention. She leaves plenty of poison for the other atheist groundbreakers like Dawkins, Hitchens, Marr, and any, brackets, white male mostly, who pushes back against the new religion of wokeness. Well, someone certainly doesn't like their white male heroes criticized. And it's not even true about Hitchens, because I don't think I've ever really talked about Hitchens on my show in any detail, so I don't know what they're on about, but maybe they can't think clearly through all the angry tears? Uh, I don't know. The only truly triggered person here, I think, is the one leaving the review. It's so so entertaining and perfectly encapsulates uh, IDW-esque intolerance, IDW-esque identity politics, and IDW-esque hypocrisy so, so well. Unhinged from facts and logic, relying on imaginary social constructs of postmodernism. This is just word salad and buzzwords they've heard in the heterodox sphere. Like, what are they even referring to specifically? She tries hard to, anonymously, of course, belittle her betters, but fails other than to show a sophomoric, snarky dismissiveness. There's so much in that little incoherent sentence. Anger at my anonymity again, condescension, and oh, that classic anger at a woman who dares to be sarcastic or snarky. So many of these are repeated themes amongst my most dedicated critics. Really convenient that the person writing this kindly put them all together here. 
This girl has a lot of growing up to do still. <laughs> I love how they talk about me as if I'm a seven-year-old girl who doesn't know what she's doing and not a full-grown adult who has laid out in detail why I criticize the people I do, often with samples of their own words. Some insights about life in the house of Saud were curious, but otherwise entirely forgettable. <laughs> I love that the Saudi royal family is being used as a synonym for Saudi Arabia. I can assure you that I never lived with the Saudi royal family. And I thought they thought I was making up my identity and background, so it was clearly interesting and authentic enough for them to mention here, but otherwise entirely forgettable. So forgettable, in fact, that this person wrote out like four or five paragraphs about my show. Another soul lost to the victimhood cult contagion, which clearly impairs both logical reasoning and basic cognitive abilities. Ooh, that is a long sentence. I don't know, man. Did someone use a chat GPT to write this? Like, it's such silly nonsense. But amazing, amazing either way. Thank you, review writer, for the entertainment. It was like, you know, hard to give me a chuckle after the dark stuff I was talking about earlier, but you managed. Great stuff. Anywho, there are, of course, plenty of kind and creative, very nice reviews too, but I didn't want to deprive you of this comedy gold, so I chose to share this one. If you enjoy the show, please do consider leaving a review. Make it funny and creative, and maybe I'll read it out next time. And hey, extra points if you can do that without being a creepy, misogynistic, infantilizing weirdo. Well, friends, I am glad we got some good laughs out of that. Let me leave you with the urgent message that the podcast definitely needs more patrons to survive. It's at risk currently, and if we can get about 50, 60 new patrons, I am planning on starting yet another exciting new miniseries when or if we reach that goal. I will reveal what it will be about if we get to half of that. Um, anyways, I know you guys like those miniseries, so hopefully we can get more of a budget and more specialty miniseries in the new year. Well, that is all for me for this year. Thank you all for listening. See you in 2024. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to support it, there are several ways you can do that. You can share it online, talk about what you just heard. You can leave a five-star review to help others find it too. And you can also subscribe via patreon.com forward slash nice mangoes. No E in mangoes. If you'd like to follow me on Twitter before it's uh, completely wrecked, you'll find me at nice mangoes. Again, no E in mangoes. <laughs>